which I'm done eating if you want. <laughs> I just pressed record no. as you said that. Cool, great. <laughs> hello, hello. I hope you enjoy my mouth sound. <laughs> hello. Um, hi. Welcome um, to Millennial Poets Society. And that's all, folks. <laughs> Welcome. Here we are in our new lovely kitchen at our lovely dining table. New kitchen, old table. Who dis? <laughs> you're clever. You think you're clever. It, it was cute. I thought it was cute. Um, Who are you? I'm Marguerite Virginia. I'm Emily Klein. And we are your hosts this evening or afternoon or morning. And literally always when you listen to this podcast, it's us. And just your life. Let us host your life. Oh, God, I don't want to host anybody's life. I can barely host my own. <laughs> I was like, and next time on Emily's Day, will she fuck up today? As bad as she did yesterday. Let's tune in. Let's find out. <laughs> like, let's find out. <laughs> um, great. So, yeah, we're here. We're doing the thing. Um, we, as you will know because an episode didn't come out, but we are, uh, as we've said in past episodes, taking a break from our um, Who's to Say episodes. Just we finished for this season. season. Yeah. We finished season one, and we're going to be, um, season two will come out sometime to be determined, uh, but we want to be getting your pieces uh, still so that we can be working on and getting ready for season two so we can come back with a bang. Um, so you can, our Who's to Say episodes are our mini episodes where we talk about um, unpublished or self-published poets and uh, we'll talk about one of their pieces, give a little bio on them and everything and share their work so that then uh, we are supporting the up-and-coming poetry community as well as people who are more established yeah. so you can uh if that if you fall under that category or you know people who fall under that category send your things have them send their things to millennial poets society at gmail.com um, an email address that you'll be able to find in the description of this episode or you'll also be able to find it on our instagram page if you go to search for mps underscore podcast on instagram uh, first, give us a follow, like some of our pictures, hey. watch our story maybe, and um, and then click on the contact or email button that's under the bio so that you can send us some of your work. Or um, And also we love to get like any constructive uh, criticism that you have or things that you love or comments on the topics or corrections that you have for us. Um, we make a lot of mistakes, yeah. We, yeah, we'd love to hear from you in any way, shape, or form, but especially for there's those Who's to Say episodes that we can, so that we can keep working on them and um, and getting a head start for you guys so that we can come back um, hitting the ground running for season two. Yeah. So, um, but meanwhile. <laughs> meanwhile, what are you dealing with? today dealing with life as a new yorker and also dealing with trying to figure out when i was born oh my gosh <laughs> so for those of you listeners out there if you're just tuning into this fine podcast you'll uh you won't know this but we are we meaning me emily um i'm a little bit obsessed with uh astrology and so is our other roommate <laughs> and so and last night I went to bed and the two of them stayed up gabbing or something and they were talking about uh, our other roommate was pressuring Marguerite 
to know when she was born because that is a really good way, it's like the only way to figure out what your chart looks like. And it, that's a big deal in astrology. And so. I do not know when I was born. And I've asked my mom previously and I it, it makes me feel better because she doesn't, I mean, even know probably anything about astrology, but it was just, it's just really funny because they're super into it. And so I asked my mom one time and I was like, Hey mom, what time was I born? They want to know. And she's like, I have no idea. And I was like, great, cool. Glad we're all on the same page. All right. <laughs> but then, so she was, our other roommate was asking me again last night and I texted her and then she didn't get back to me until today. And she was like, I have literally no idea. And I literally went through your birth like file oh and it God. doesn't say on your birth certificate on your birth announcement like nothing says think, when you were born I didn't think that was a, um, like a legal thing I thought you had to say the time of when you were born like right you know like time of death don't you have to have a time of birth too like is is that am I crazy I don't know to something me, yeah no I really I really thought so also she just texted me <laughs> I posted something on my Instagram story what was it oh the the it says he zombied me. It's like ghosting, but then the guy comes back from the dead, from the dead a couple months later and hits you up. And my mom <laughs> saw that and felt the need. She goes, "Just saw your Instagram. I'm sorry." With a kissy face. Oh my gosh. <laughs> moms, you guys. Moms on social media. Moms on social media is a whole mood. And mom, if you're listening, I love how much you love my content. It's amazing. Every time I have a story on Instagram, she's the first one to smash that like button. She's the first one to watch the content and like react to it and use all the fun emoji like flying stickers that they do now. And it's it's so fun and I love it to death. And like every once in a while, my dad will get on there too, which is really cool. But like my dad mostly, is not on anything. <laughs> mostly it's just my mom and it's just, it cracks me up and I love it. And she's going to, she's going to say something like, I pushed you out of me. You can't make fun of me now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it's so great. And it's, it's just the cutest thing to mm. see like, our parents having their own like relationships and like friendships and stuff online and yeah. I'm like oh they're growing up so fast <laughs> um my mom sent a text and she goes you were born either late at night or really early in the morning I don't know with a shrug emoji <laughs> amazing <laughs> thanks mom so that's that stay tuned to find out what we can decipher from that off from Martin's birth chart <sighs> yeah I'm an individual person that no astrological That's not signs true. can. It's bullshit. Everybody has something. Yeah, and it's so okay. I'm not even gonna. No, All it's right. dumb. It's stupid. <clears throat> we know it's stupid. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it's fun. Anyway, uh, speaking anyway. of horror stories, I went to go see it chapter two yesterday. Yeah, boy, am I terrified <laughs> why do I do this to myself I don't know I don't do it for the sake of seeing old friends I decided oh it'll be fun to go see a movie but that... you like going to see them sometimes right sometimes but a lot of the time it's like I, I would much rather watch like an old scary movie like okay. something that's very clearly like they're just movies today are so smart and legitimate that mm -hmm. they are horrifying mm. because you can't see the like 
goofy CGI happening or you can't yeah. see the like man dressed up like a real. goblin you know like, yeah. it's, it's all so real and it's terrifying yeah it chapter two is no exception it's very good um it's beautiful like cinematically it's got mm. uh, it's got great camera work the CGI is like the special effects are are interesting and fun sometimes they're really funny um oh but they're creepy and it's just like I yeah old people are creepy yeah and there's a I mean whole, but I mean they're scary in yeah, scary movies yeah and there's there's a whole section where there's a it's like a whole thing and that I think haunts me more than anything else so anyway so there's that you um, liked it better um but you liked it better than Midsummer, right yeah because I wasn't nearly as afraid okay Midsummer was gross like midsummer had like gore a lot of see gore that's why i think it. i could probably watch midsummer the thing is i think you're right like i'm not i didn't leave midsummer thinking like oh my god i'm like something's i'm scared gonna be in my closet for, or right something. exactly yeah. i was just like scared in the moment and grossed out yeah um yeah whereas it is like that classic horror plot where it's a thing and like you can't describe yeah. it and it, it it always looks different and so you never really know like this plate could be it you know you could be it you know whatever it's like this whole thing but um you know spoiler alerts I guess well I'm not gonna talk about it we're not gonna talk about it I don't want to ruin it for anybody but okay. it's it's a classic tale and it's um it's very it's very good cool. I enjoyed it yeah. Uh, and I got to hang out with my friend, which was fun. Yeah, very fun. Like very I, fun. I did, however, fall face first down a full flight of stairs on my way to the movie. Yeah. It was pretty rough. I'm sorry. Yeah. That's that's life for you, though. <laughs> Sometimes you just got to somersault your way down a, a very crowded movie I'm not going to lie. I thought you were... I just... I, ju I just assumed you were at Alamo, and so I was like, she fell down an escalator. Oh, my God. <laughs> no. I was like, oh, no, wow. I thankfully did not fall down an escalator. <laughs> Holy shit. Um, I was like, she would have fallen, fallen so fast. <laughs> I did fall really fast. But an escalator, like, that's going with you. That's terrifying. I know. Um, I fell like, I've never fallen face first down a flight of stairs like it was like when you fell down the the stairs at the uh, subway with your <laughs> with your yeah. big suitcase uh-huh I it was it was really scary and I threw my phone and somebody was shouting they were like ah <laughs> they like saw me it was hilarious in, like now that I look back at it and I was yeah now that you're not like emotionally and physically bruised right. I mean you may be bruised I'm but like but I, well, I was talking to my sister about it today and she was like I'm really sorry I'm, I'm so glad you're okay but you you know this is hilarious right and I was like no I I, I was laughing when it happened like I was yeah. like this is so crazy I'm yeah. falling like how weird <laughs> so funny thing this gravity <laughs> yeah so anyway uh, yeah I'm a little beat up today but mm -hmm. Well, you know what else is new well on that note on that note <laughs> now we get started i think so i think we're ready we're on episode 25 so that means it's I your turn first. first yeah yes 
So as you know, I'm doing my little feminism and poetry segment for the next few weeks. Yeah. And this week we're talking about first wave feminism. Woo. Yay. So I wanted to also do a little feminism fun fact. Um, feminism fun fact. Yeah. I'm going to try and start all of them with a feminism fun fact now too because I think feminism it's cool. Fact. Yeah. Wait. What is that? Um, (laughs) Oh, it's something that I do all the time. (laughs) What is it? Oh my god. Anyway, Anyway. that's gonna drive me crazy. (laughs) Yeah, so feminism fun fact in 1833, the first co educational American university was founded. Can you guess which one it was? I'll give you. No. (laughs) (laughs) I'll give you a guess, a hint. It's in Ohio. The Ohio State University? Incorrect. 1833. Any guesses? Any other guesses? Oberlin? It was Oberlin College! How did you know? You just guessed one. One of the only Ohio schools I could think of that wasn't Kent State. Cool. (laughs) Cool. And we were 18... 1903. Mm-hmm. We were in 1903 because... I was trying to see if there was something in here that said Because <laughs> 100 years after Ohio became a state, Kent State became a school. Cool. Yeah. I think that's right. It's wrong. No, it might be right because the school of theater and dance was 1910. Okay. Or 11. Anyway. <laughs> so that's my feminism fun fact. Great. In 1833, the first co-educational American university was founded and it was Oberlin college in Ohio. Nice. Okay. So first wave feminism is a period of feminist activity and thought that occurred during the 19th and early 20th century throughout the Western world. It focused on legal issues, primarily on gaining the right to vote. Early feminism was directly correlated with the abolitionist movements. And as a result, many famous feminists and activists began to have their voices heard, which is pretty cool. Yeah. First wave feminism specifically in the United States did not chronicle the contributions of black women to the same degree as white women. And that Mm -hmm. is a very important fact. Yeah. Activists, including Susan B. Anthony and other feminist leaders, preached for equality between genders. However, they disregarded completely equality between a number of other issues, including race. Yeah. This allowed for white women to gain power and equality relative to white men while the social disparity between white and black women and people of color in general increased. The exclusion aided the growing prevalence of white supremacy, specifically white feminism, while actively overlooking the severity of impact black feminists had on the movement. So we don't, we, we as a nation, we as a country, as a society did Mm -hmm. not give black females any sort of credit for Mm -hmm. feminism at all and it was horrible yeah some of the leaders though of this first wave included some familiar names like i said susan b anthony elizabeth katie stanton carrie chapman cat ida b wells margaret sanger and many others seneca falls um is like 45 minutes from where i grew up and that's where it was like a really big yeah like central to the suffrage movement yes exactly yeah we took a field trip there like like eighth or ninth grade or something and we got to see all the different houses and all that stuff and things where things happened very cool yeah i like that 
So anyway, that's just a little tidbit about first wave feminism to give you an idea of around the time frame we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're it's uh, anywhere between like the late 1800s to the like 1920s and through 40s sort okay. of time period. It's a little loose in my head now. I am I I have not studied this again, so. <laughs> If you have some exact dates, I'd You're love them. You're not an expert? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. <laughs> like a uh, Muppet or something. No. No. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> my first poet for today is Amy Lowell. She was born February 9th, 1874 in Boston, Massachusetts. You're yawning. I thought you were making a face like, Sorry. oh... <laughs> I was I like, was. <laughs> but you were like, no, I, I thought you were going to stop me. And I was like, yes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I was just breathing. I do that all the time. It's fine. <laughs> uh, her siblings included the astronomer Percival Lowell. Percival. The educator and legal scholar Abbott Lawrence Lowell, who grew up to be president of, uh, it's right here. Why am I not reading it? Harvard College. <laughs> I tried to like remember away, it. Like, mm, what was it? Oh, what was it? If only I'd written it down. <laughs> if only it were right in front of my face. <laughs> and her other sibling is early activist for prenatal care, Elizabeth Lowell Putnam. Hmm. Thank you, Elizabeth Lowell. Uh, during her career, that is Amy Lowell. Okay. During her career that spanned just over 12 years, Amy Lowell wrote and published over 650 poems. Oh. Yeah. Yet, scholars cite Lowell's tireless efforts to teach American readers of contemporary trends in poetry as her more influential contribution to literary history. Oh. Uh, so she's a teacher. Yeah. Not like she was a professor or anything, but like she just spoke out a lot about Yeah, she wanted to help stuff. educate and spread the good word. Yeah, literally. Yeah. As a young girl, Lowell attended private schools in between long treks to Europe with her family, which sounds glamorous, but really probably wasn't. I mean, yeah, at that time going by you're boat, on, yeah, you know, getting motion sick. Oh, it was yeah. not a cruise ship. This was not a pleasure cruise. No. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's nothing. <laughs> At the age of 17, she began a diligent process of educating herself inside the 7,000-volume library at Seven L's, the Lowell family seat in Brookline, Massachusetts. Wow. So her family had this 7,000-volume library. Just like, It was their so, library. Yeah, it was at Seven L's, which was the name of their estate, like, estate in, oh in Massachusetts. God. Okay. So I think their boat rides probably weren't that bad. They weren't like they in were the... still boat rides though. Yeah, like... but they were like in the first class probably, area. Yeah. <laughs> she was very well to do. Yes, uh, school was a source of considerable despair for Amy Lowell hmm. since uh, she considered herself to be developing masculine and ugly features, and she was a social outcast. Um, she mm. did not have a reputation. I'm sorry. She did have a reputation to be outspoken and opinionated around her classmates which may have also contributed to her outcast tendencies. Her family did not think it was proper for a woman to attend college, so she Great. compensated for the lack of formal schooling with avid reading and book collecting because she was like, ain't nobody gonna stop me from getting an education, mister. Mm-hmm. 
At age 28 in 1902, Lowell turned to poetry and began in, in, after being inspired by a performance by Eleonora Dews in Europe. Hmm. So she came to it kind of late in the game. She was 28. And she saw her first poem, Fixed Idea, published in the Atlantic in August 1910. Mm. So she started writing in 1902, didn't publish till 1910. Yeah. Um, other poems, uh, other, more of her poems appeared regularly in various periodicals over the next several years. Uh, in 1912, Lowell's first connection of, collection of poetry was published. It was called A Dome of Many-Colored Glass, and it was met with mixed criticism. I feel like that sounds very familiar. Really? Yeah. I had never heard of it, but that's exciting. <laughs> um, some explained that her first book was a, quote, typical first book characterized by conventional themes. Okay. Okay. And <laughs> others noted that Lowell's honesty of expression and occasional brilliant image provide a glimpse of what was to come, which is... Okay. Foreshadowing for what I'm going to talk about next. Mm. Uh, um, Lowell was said was said to be a lesbian, and in 1912, she and actress Ada Dwyer Russell were reported to be lovers. Ada Russell is supposedly the subject of Lowell's more erotic works, most notably the love poems contained in Two Speak Together, which is a subsection of her collection, Pictures of the Floating World. Lowell wanted to dedicate her books to Dwyer, who refused except for one time in a non-poetry book uh, in which Lowell wrote, To ADR, this and all my books. Hmm. Examples of the poems she wrote uh, for Dwyer include The Taxi, which I'll be reading later, Absence, In a Garden, Madonna of the Evening Flowers, Opal, and more. If hmm. you ever want to read them, those are the titles. Cool. They're beautiful. After beginning a career as a poem, <laughs> after beginning a career as a poem, oh my god, <laughs> same. I wrote this so fast. <laughs> after beginning a career as a poet when she was well into her thirties, Lowell became an enthusiastic student and disciple of the art. In 1913, after reading a number of poems signed H. D. Imagiste. She realized that her own poetry followed in much of the same literary vein. The new style of poetry she had just encountered was termed imagism by its main proponent, Ezra Pound. Ah. Imagism borrowed from both English and American verse styles to create a new Anglo-American literary movement that, quote, honed poetic expression down to its purest, most direct form. Cool. Much of the style was influenced by the general mood of modernism coming from the era prior to World War I. Mm -hmm. So um, that's just to give you a ballpark like time frame of where we are. Yeah. With a desire to learn more about imagism, Lowell, Lowell traveled to London with the goal of meeting Pound, and Ada Dwyer Russell went with her. Lowell and Pound struck up a mutual friendship, and she was exposed to other modernist trends in the performing and visual arts as well. Back in Boston... Lowell took it up upon herself to make imagism both critically and financially successful in the U.S. She would travel frequently between Boston and London, and eventually Pound abandoned the movement for a few years, and Lowell was left to take up the editorship of an annual anthology of imagist poetry the, uh, to which she'd previously been a contributor. That's cool. It is really cool. Um, this appointment began in 1915, 
with a collection called Some Imagist Poets, an anthology. Mm-hmm. Um, stuff it, and things. Yeah, things, things and, stuff. and stuff is poems. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> And a lot of people were really excited about her taking over for Ezra because they were like, he's a fraud because he, he gave up the war. Like, they were just like, like, imagist purists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she mm-hmm. was like, I've shown dedication to this. And they were like, we love you. Great. Fuck Ezra, pal. <laughs> like, Fuck you know. Ezra. Fuck Ezra. <laughs> yeah. According to Lowell, writers of imagist poetry should strive, one, to use the language of common speech, two, to create new rhythms, three, to allow absolute freedom in the choice of subject, four, to present an image, duh, five, to produce poetry that is hard and clear, never blurred or indefinite, and six, finally, most of us believe that concentration is of the very essence of poetry. So those were like, her stipulations and guidelines that she put out. She was like, listen, if you want to be part of my compilation, you got to be with my... If you want to be in the club. If you want to be in my poetry book, you got to get get with with my rules. (laughs) Exactly. Amy Lowell also published... That was pretty good. (laughs) Uh, Amy Lowell also published several independent volumes of her own verse around this time, including Sword... Sword Blades... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> including sword blades and poppy sword seeds <laughs> sword blades and poppy seeds <laughs> sword blades and poppy that. seeds in 1914 mm-hmm. can can grand's castle or can grande's castle i don't know in 1918 and pictures of the floating world in 1919 Her work during this period had a non-metrical style she felt was well-suited for the English language and based on the natural rhythms of speech. Critics called this style, officially known as polyphonic prose, Mm. quote, the most various and supple poetic form ever devised in English. Wow. Many more volumes of her work were published, but 1921's Legends would be the last collection of her work published before she died. In it, she uses 11 legends from around the globe as a basis for 11 poems. Hmm. I think it's a pretty cool prompt. In the early t- 1920s, Lowell took a break from the art and business of poetry to write a, write a biography on John Keats. In it, hmm. she attempted to show why she felt the English writer was the spiritual forebearer of imagist poetry, hmm. which was a hefty uh, topic. Hefty topic. Her extensive research and dedication to the project left her with a 1,300-page finished project. Dear product. Lord. I know. Like, I don't know that much about anything. I and I don't want that. to. Yeah. Yeah. So, 1,300-page finished product, and it took a really big physical toll on her, where, like, she yeah. basically, like, went blind after. Oh, It was a big my deal. God. Her health rapidly declined around this time. Uh, a glandular condition caused her to gain weight constantly, and she was an avid smoker of cigars, which is, you know, fun and everything, but probably not the best idea for her health. Probably not. Um, hernia attacks were quite common for her, and in May of 1925, she suffered a serious one. Two days later, she rose from bed against medical advice and was immediately struck down by a stroke. Oh, wow. She died within a few hours. Yeah. 
Ada Dwyer Russell edited a few po posthumous collections of Lowell's verse, including What's O'Clock, like What's O'Clock, mm -hmm. which was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry. <laughs> what's O'Clock? <laughs> yeah. What's O'Clock? What's, what's O'Clock? Yeah. But it sounds like What's O'Clock. Yeah. Um, but so that won the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry in 1926, posthumously. For wow. Her, which was pretty cool. So, like, Very. thanks, Ada, yeah. for publishing her work somewhere. Right? After hearing of her death, Hayward, ooh, Hayward Brown, Brown, but it's B R O U N, Brown, 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 <laughs> Hayward Brown. <laughs> Hayward Brown and his obit in his obituary tribute to Amy obituary. Lowell. Obituary. Yeah. In his tribute to Amy Lowell, he wrote, mm -hmm. She was upon the surface of things a Lowell, a New Englander and a spinster. But inside, everything was molten like the core of the earth. Given one more gram of emotion, Amy Lowell would have burst into flames and been consumed to cinders. Wow. She cared so much. Why do you have to call her a spinster, though? Because that's what people called people when they didn't marry. I'm sorry. That's what people called women when they didn't marry, and it no. was a big deal. Anyway, um, so I want to read to you the poem she wrote called Taxi. Yeah. And it's from Sword Blades and Poppy Seeds. Sword Blades. Sword Blades and, and Poppy, Poppy Seeds. Read the poem like that. <laughs> no. This is the taxi. When I go away from you, the world beats dead like a slackened drum. I call out for you against the jutted stars and shout into the ridges of the wind. Streets coming fast, one after another, wedge you away from me. And the lamps of the city prick my eyes so that I can no longer see your face. Why should I leave you? to wound myself upon the sharp edges of the night. Mm. Isn't that, like, gorgeous? Yeah. It's very simple, and it's written in that way that really showcases how she um, wanted her imagist poetry to be comprehended. Yeah. So imagery was really important to her, mm -hmm. obviously. And I feel like naming this poem The Taxi was really smart because you never... She never says, I'm driving away in a taxi or I'm right. riding away. But, yeah. like, the image of the taxi is in is integral to this, to understanding the poem. Mm -hmm. And it's a main plot point in yeah. the poem, but you never actually say it, um, which I think is, is very strong. Mm -hmm. so, That's really cool. Yeah, I just really liked it. I thought it was beautiful and a little love poem. Yeah. You know, just about, like, how hard it is to leave your lover and... You know, mm -hmm. anyway. Very so nice. that's Amy Lowell. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay, my next poem, mm -hmm. and by poem I mean poet, is Louise Bogan. Cool. She was born August 11th, 1897, in Livermore Falls, Maine. Livermore. Yeah. Interesting. Sorry about it. Uh, she is the daughter of a mill worker. Her parents were not in a happy marriage due largely to her mother's mental and emotional instability. Mm. May, Louise's mother, engaged in many extramarital affairs and flaunted them around. And uh, this becomes kind of a key point. I think it really must have 
affected yeah. Louise like deeply. Understand Because um, she writes about it a lot in her poetry. Yeah. Like a big fear of being jilted or like being made fun of mm-hmm. or or by being, like a lover by like a lover it be yeah being cheated on or hmm. you know loudly renounced yeah. kind of thing um so yeah that was a very troubling childhood for louise um with the help of a female benefactor though bogan attended girls latin school for five years where she began writing poetry and reading the first issues of poetry magazine Hmm. Uh, which she would later be published in, which is really exciting. That's really cool. She attended Boston University for one year, but then left in 1916 because she won a scholarship to Radcliffe College. She turned it down to move to NYC with her husband. Hmm. Louise Bogan decided to move to New York to pursue a career in writing, and her only daughter, Maddie, I'm sorry, Maddie Alexander, was left in the care of her parents. So... Hmm. this idea that like I don't know if that was like a forever kind of thing or if that was just a you're gonna live with your my awful parents for now kind of thing I don't know but the daughter doesn't come back into this narrative in anywhere I could find like ever again so that's too bad it was weird of her to just be like here have my kid I know you were awful with me but maybe you'll be okay with her I know you scarred me emotionally for my entire life yeah but Here's my daughter. Right. So, huh. Anyway. Um, Louise and her husband separated in 1919, and he died of pneumonia a year later. Mm. Bogan moved to Vienna, where she lived a writer's life of solitude for three years. When she returned to New York in 1923, she worked in a a bookstore with cultural anthropologist Margaret Mead. Mm. Pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Her first published collection, Body of This Death, in, uh, was which is a really cool name, Body of This Death. I don't mm-hmm. know. That's interesting to me. Yeah. Um, was published in 1923, and it contains several of Bogan's most memorable poems, and in general, reveals betrayal, particularly sexual betrayal, to be a constant theme, like mm-hmm. I was saying. Mm-hmm. Sorry, I couldn't read my notes for a second. Um, Critics stated that several of her poems in this collection addressed specifically female concerns. Um, according to Brett C. Miller, Miller, her poems are by no means dogmatically feminist. Bogan held a deep distrust for all ideological commitment, but um, they do sort of lean in that way. But like, mm-hmm. if you were to classify them, you would be doing her a disservice because she was like, I don't want to be tamed. I don't want to okay. be owned by an ideology you know Mm -hmm. okay um in 1929 she published dark summer followed by sleeping fury in 1937 Mm -hmm. i like both of those names they are really she's really good at naming things Mm -hmm. um but there's a big gap between there like 1929 and then 1937 yeah you know like she's just doing it at her own pace which is which is good um the latter of these questions of these collections established Bogan as a modern master. Uh, She also had been awarded two fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation. Guggenheim. The Guggenheim Foundation. The Bollingen Mm -hmm. Award from Yale and a monetary award from the Academy of American Poets and the National Endowment of the Arts. Uh, For the arts. Yeah. Not only was it difficult being a female poet in the 30s and 40s, but her lower middle class Irish background and limited education also brought on mm-hmm. much ambivalence and contradiction for her. Her poetry, though, uh, despite all of this 
working against her, yeah. has been published in The New Republic, The Nation, The Nation, Poetry Magazine, Scribner's, 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 and uh, The Atlantic Scribner. Monthly. She yeah. was the poetry reviewer of The New Yorker from 1931 to 1970, almost 38 wow. years. Yeah. Um, and that was, she only retired, like, when she was on her deathbed. Jeez. She just loved being a reviewer and a critic. Yeah. And that was what really, like, solidified her name in American poetry societies. Huh. Um, like, as a critic. Yeah. She was a strong supporter and friend of the poet Theodore Retke. Hey. Another MPS alum. And they carried on a raucous affair in 1935. Hey. He was unpublished at the time, and in her words, she viewed the affair as, at most, a source for her own work. Ah! Uh, but so you get it, girl. Hey. Louise Bogan also wrote a great deal of criticism, like I said. Her book, Achievement in American Poetry, 1900-1950, was a brief account of poetry during the first half of the 20th century in America. Critics deemed it a success, and her word became law. The Blue Estuaries, Poems 1923 to 1968, was the final collection of poems published before Bogan's death. The New York Times reviewed the book, saying, quote, Now that we can see the sweep of 45 years' work in this collection of over 100 poems, we can judge what a feat of character it has been. Her diction stems from the severest lyrical tradition in English. Her language is, a supple, is as supple as it is accurate dealing with things in their own tones. Hmm. Louise Bogan died in 1970 at her home in Manhattan at age 72. Hmm. And I want to read a poem that she wrote called Betrothed. And I think it encapsulates that sort of melancholy vibe that she really wrote with for the majority of her career. Mm -hmm. You have put your two hands upon me and your mouth. You have said my name as a prayer. Here, where trees are planted by the water, I have watched your eyes, cleansed from regret, and your lips, closed over all that love cannot say. My mother remembers the agony of her womb and the long years that seem to promise more than this. She says, you do not love me. You do not want me. You will go away. In the country where to I go, I shall not see the face of my friend, nor her hair the color of sunburnt grasses. Together we shall not find the land on whose hills bend the new moon in air traverses birds. What have I thought of love? I have said it is beauty and sorrow. I have thought that it would bring me lost delights and splendor as a wind out of old time. But there is only evening here and the sound of willows, now and again, dipping their long oval leaves into the water. Hmm. I just find that profoundly sad. Yeah. You know? And it's so... It, loneliness is such a driving theme in it, I think, and in a lot mm -hmm. of her work. And I'm wondering... It didn't have a date specifically for this poem, but I'm wondering if she wrote it in that, like, three years of living as a writer in solitude mm -hmm. in Vienna. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, it's about a marriage that has lost all love or perhaps maybe there never was any love mm -hmm. there to begin with. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, it just seems so deeply sad. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really loved it. And I thought that it was like, it struck me. It sounded so contemporary, you know, mm-hmm. like I could see somebody writing that today. Yeah. You know, it just sounded like, I don't know. It, it just, it struck me and I was like, oh, I, this might be one of my new favorite poems. Like it's mm-hmm. just, it's beautiful with its imagery and, and it's sad and it's, it has a whole life lived in its in its words. Yeah. It, what I when I read it, I can see an entire love story grow and fail. Yeah. You know, and yeah. I think that that's asking a lot of some words, but I think right. she did it. Yeah. So it well, it's cool. not like a incredibly long poem. Mm-mm. So for her to fit all that in and in the short amount of lines that she had, it's yeah, yeah impressive. Yeah. So anyway, that is Louise Borgen, Bogan, sorry, and my other poets as well. So great. That's me. Thank you. Part Thank two you. of feminism. Stay tuned for second wave feminism next week. Love it. Amazing. Well, sure. we will take a short break, break, and then it will be my turn. Okay. Yay. We're back. <laughs> Hello. Hello. Um, it's my turn now. It's your turn. My turn. So I am going to be talking about Matea Harvey, mm-hmm. who is someone that I actually, I actually had to text Emily and be like, did you do this poem? Because she must be someone that I had come across before in my research. Cause I found this poem that I wanted to do. And I was like, I have read this poem before, or someone has like read it to me or something. Um, and then I clicked on her bio in, uh, poetry foundation. And I was like, I recognize her face. Like I, this is so That's weird. Amazing. So it must be someone that I'd come across before in my research. And for whatever reason, um, hadn't chose to do her at the time, but we're going to do her today. Matea Harvey was born in Germany on September 3rd, 1973. Um, and she spent the first eight years of her life in England before moving to the U S in 1981. Mm. So, um, all of her bios consider her, uh, an American poet. Um, because she spent the majority of her life here, but she sure. lived other places and was born other places first. Mm-hmm. Um, she has published, uh, I believe it was five collections of poetry total thus far, um, including ones, uh, including If the Tabloids Are True, What Are You? It published in 2014. Oh, I know that one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Sorry. No, <laughs> yeah. Uh, of Lamb in 2011, uh, which was in collaboration with artist Amy Jean Porter. Um, Modern Life, published in 2007, and the the winner of the Kingsley Tufts Poetry Award. And Sad Little Breathing Machine in 2004, which I like that name, Sad Little Breathing Machine. Is that me? I'm a sad little breathing machine. I was like, is that just humans? We're sad little breathing machines. Um... So she grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and earned her BA from Harvard University and her MFA from the Iowa Iowa Writers Workshop. You know who's there now? Not now. Didn't Clementine von Reddix do something there? Oh, maybe. Maybe they did. I think it's a very notable, like, master's program and everything. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So that's where Mateo went. Uh, she currently lives in Brooklyn. Hey. Hey. What part of Brooklyn do we know? No. I don't Brooklyn's think she wants to reveal big. that. I don't want to reveal that. <laughs> we live in... Beep. Thank you for inserting your own sound effect. <laughs> so you don't have to do it later. <laughs> um, she teaches at St. Lawrence College. Um, 
Oh. And yeah. Cool. Yeah. I don't know where that is. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's nearby because she lives in Brooklyn. Yeah. Um, she has served as the poetry editor of American Letters and Commentary, as well as the, a contributing editor for Jubiat and BOMB, in all caps, B-O-M-B. Oh. Um, I'm not just yelling the word BOMB. Oh, I was like, okay. <laughs> uh, poet Dan, uh, Dean Young has called Harvey's poems marvelous contraptions that explore and present artifices... Uh, in the best sense and disclosures of fabrication into plays of significance and are always ravishingly complex. Mm. And poet Jory Graham describes Harvey's work as generous, urgent, and savingly committed to beauty. Mm. So some nice um, commentary on her work. Absolutely. Um, Janine Hall Gailey described her described Harvey's uh, collection Modern Life as obsessed with devastated worlds and hybrid forms of life. And the two longest poems in the collection, the terror of the terror, uh, terror of the future, and the fear of terror, as abecedarian sequences, obsidi, obs, some uh, a literary word. They're like mirror oh. opposites, I think, because it's <sighs> the terror of the future and the future of terror. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah, I didn't look up what that means. I don't know how to pronounce it, so maybe someone will tell me. It's A-B-E-C-E-D-A-R-I-A-N. Abecedarian sequences that uh, examine the dysfunction between civilian and military populations in a stark futuristic environment. And although Harvey has said that she didn't set out to write political poems, but but explore that idea of living in the middle of contradiction in the gray area between yes and no the two poems were nonetheless acclaimed by the new york times as among the most arresting poems yet written about the current american political atmosphere all the more surprising coming from a writer whose sensibility seems so resistant to our usual ideas about political poetry um how did you spell it a b e c e d a r i a n yeah um an abecedarian is a person who is just learning a novice Abecedarian sequences arranged alphabetically in a, an abecedarian sequence. Interesting. Well, those would be cool poems to read. I didn't, I'm not going to read them for you today. But Sorry. You I should like, all check them out. No, that's good to, to know. know. <laughs> I don't understand what it's describing them as then. but In um, alphabetical order is okay. what it means to have an abecedarian sequence. Okay. Um... Yeah, but I, okay. Um, Harvey draws from a wide variety of sources for her poems, music, scraps of conversation, images, and paintings. She identifies herself as a general gatherer, which is mm. kind of funny. That made that phrase made me think of, like, a hunter-gatherer. Yeah. And thinking of, like, a, po- a poet as, like, a hunter-gatherer, like, gathering all their little things for their <laughs> poems and, like, hunting for little things for poems and stuff. And little just, hoarders. Yeah. Oh, like, those little, those little things from... Oh my god, the Harry Potter, it's not Harry Potter, it's oh, Fantastic, Fantastic Beasts. Beast. Yeah, where they have their little gold things in there, put them in their little pouches yeah. or whatever. Yeah. That's what poets are. <laughs> <laughs> um, David Orr described her poems as containing disconnected phrases, abrupt syntac- syntactical shifts, quirky diction, and a tone ranging from daffy to plainant. Basically, two scoops of John Asprey and a sprinkling of Gertrude Stein. 
Mm, I love me some Gertrude. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and I, I'm glad that I came across that quote from him because this poem, when I was reading it, I was like, am I reading this correctly or wrong? But because it, it like gets cut off really weird and you'll be in the middle of a sentence and then like it'll sound like there's a couple words missing or it'll like slightly like shift and you're like, wait, wait, what, mm. what? So I was like, oh, okay, no, that's, it's supposed to be like that. And I'm not just stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the poem that I'm going to read today is from her collection, uh, Pity the Bathtub, It's Forced Embrace of the Human Form is the name of the collection. Okay. And so the summary of that collection on Goodreads, because I like Goodreads. Love Goodreads. Yeah, I like their summaries sometimes. They describe it as comic, elegic, and always formally intricate, using political allegory and painterly... Uh, painterly landscape, philosophic story, and dramatic monologue. These poems describe a moment when something marvelous and unforeseen alters the course of a single day, a year, or an entire life. So, uh, the name of this poem that I'm going to read is called In Defense of Our Overgrown Garden. Last night, the apple tree shook and gave each lettuce a heart. Six hard red apples broke through the greenhouse glass and landed in the middle of those ever so slightly green leaves that seem no mix of seeds and soil, but of pastels and light, and chalk X's mark our oaks that are supposed to be cut down. I've seen the neighbors frown when they look over the fence and see our espalier pear trees bowing out of shape. I did like that they looked like candelabras against the wall, but what's the sense in swooning over pruning? I said as much to Mrs. Jones, I swear she threw her can at me and walked off down the street without. It has always puzzled me that people coo over bonsai trees when you can squint your eyes and shrink anything without much of a struggle and sued with some starlings and strawberry nets. So after untangling the two, I took, off, I took the nets off and watched birds with red beaks fly by all morning at the window. I reread your letter about how the castles you flew over made crenellated shadows on the water in the rain barrow has overflowed and made a small swamp. I think the potatoes might turn out slightly damp. Don't worry. If there is no fog on the day you come home, I will build a bonfire so the smoke will make the cedars look the way you like them. To close, I am sorry there won't be any salad, and I love you. <laughs> so that's in defense of our overgrown garden and I just like it like it's I don't know I don't know if there's a metaphor behind it I try to look up different like analyses of it and everything and I didn't really find anything and um it just I I love I personally really like the idea of like I love an English garden where it's like purposefully mm-hmm. overgrown this mm-hmm. isn't necessarily what this is talking about but I just love all the little, so first of all, the syntax, the way that it's structured, it's just like one big paragraph, but there's no, there's no punctuation. So it's like, you don't know where things are supposed to run into the next sentence or where it's supposed to be like a stop and you just sort of have to decide. And so that's, I was struggling the first time I read through it. I got through it a little bit better the second time. But uh, so yeah, there's times where you're just like, I don't know what is supposed to go with what and everything. And I feel like, I mean, there was one mentioning sort of of this poem, I think, where they were talking about uh, how this sort of creates that overgrown garden, the feeling of that, where it's like things are sort of running over each other and you don't see where one thing ends and the next one starts and that sort of thing. So it's like the poem is sort of mirroring that overgrown garden. And Mm -hmm. um, I think that's pretty cool. And I just love... I love like the simplicity of it where it's just like someone talking about an overgrown garden and their neighbors who are judging them mm-hmm. and just being like, so in short, the lettuce is, I can't make you a salad. Yeah. I love you. 
and I can't make you a salad. <laughs> and All of this is to say, <laughs> sorry. To close, I'm sorry there won't be any salad, and I love you. <laughs> I feel like this is me trying to have a garden where it's like I put in an effort for like a little bit and I'm just like it it is what it is I don't know what you want from me there's not gonna be salad we can buy it like we'll go to Whole Foods what like <laughs> Marguerite does not have a green thumb no. she does not enjoy taking care of a garden I don't I don't I'm like it's totally fine that you don't but yeah. also that's very astute of you to see that like this would be you. Yeah. You'd be like, listen, I tried, okay? Right? And, and well, I think that's partly why. Well, number one, I kind of like the look of a of an English garden where it's like you have all the flowers and everything that are but together. But take also, a lot of work to maintain that. You can't just let it grow. <laughs> They're purposefully mm -hmm. like that. It, they wouldn't be nearly as pretty if they just like, somebody was like, eh, mm -hmm. flowers. I mean, whatever. So... <laughs> That is In Defense of Our Overgrown Garden by Matea Harvey and my lovely little poem this week. I'm glad that I finally shared her work because clearly it's something that spoke to me the I first really time. I really enjoyed it. The yeah. Time. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Yes. Thank you. That was a that. fun, fun week. Yeah. Well, I think that's it from, from us today. We want to give a special shout out to Zach Adkins, as always, for our intro and outro music. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. And uh, at the bottom of the show notes of this episode, you will see a little link that will take you to a support page. If you click that link and you are so inclined, you can donate as little as 99 cents a month. That's it. Dollar menu donations. And a lot of that, well, a, a little bit of that goes a long way. Mm -hmm. So it will get us a new recording studio, a better mic microphone situation uh, somebody that could potentially help marguerite edit the podcast so that she doesn't have to stay up really late the night before yeah. lots of different <laughs> things and and thank you to those who have donated already that little bit like i said goes a very long way and we are very very grateful very um if you would like you can also rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening but specifically on apple Podcasts, that helps us a whole lot um helps us get a little bit better following so that when we do go back to uh, sharing your works on our, our Who's to Say Tuesdays, um, it gives you a better audience, a bigger audience to to get your word out and, and share those unpublished or self-published poets that we love so much. And uh, yeah, that's, that's all I've got. Mm -hmm. That's all, folks. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much for listening this week, and we hope you have a great weekend, and we'll see you next time next week bye bye, bye.